be seated. As you do so, I encourage you now to join me in taking your copy of God's Word, which we believe is the source and storehouse of all the true saving knowledge of our triumph God. We'll turn together for our passage uh, for this morning and for our week, and that is Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. We'll turn together to Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. So far, then, we have seen the Spirit has descended on God's people, and the church has been born. As we have been looking at in the past few weeks, in the past few passages, the church is now growing. It has gone from 120 gathered in the upper room in prayer to now some 3,000 people from various, from various nations and backgrounds. And the church is continuing to grow. But with growth, especially in a church, comes difficulties and even hardships. And the reason, the reason why we may see it in various ways, but the reason why we find difficulties and hardships in the church is because of Satan. Satan hates the gospel because he hates Jesus and he hates the followers, his followers. He hates the good news and he hates those who believe in it. So wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, where the good news of Jesus Christ is put forth boldly, wherever there is gospel ministry, then there is a surety that Satan will be found there at work to stop it. As we will see together in our passage this morning. The church has been born. The church is growing. And the church is now in the bullseye of Satan as they boldly live an authentic Christianity and they boldly share the gospel. So with that being said, let me pray for us. We will come together in our passage in God's word. Lord, open our hearts and our minds so we may both hear and believe, so we may receive and rest upon Christ as we find he's offered to us here in this part of your holy word. Do this, we pray, in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, the one whom all the Bible's about, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, since this is a longer passage, we'll stay seated, but I encourage you to read along with me now in God's word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, there were rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become now the cornerstone. 
and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they, when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, and they're saying, What shall we do with these men? For that notable sign has been performed, and through them is or, I'm sorry, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny him. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them. They charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Actions have consequences. It's a life lesson, isn't it? It's a life lesson that's good to learn. It's a fundamental life lesson, life lesson that we need to learn. And sometimes it's a hard lesson to learn. But it's a necessary one nonetheless. Because this life lesson usually teaches kind of two parts. That good actions tend to have good consequences. If you do good things, good things tend to happen. And we may think of the golden rule. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Treat others as you'd want them to be treated. Why? Because the idea is very simple. The idea is that if you are good to people, then they will, for the most part, generally speaking, they will be good back to you. That's a consequence of the action. Do unto others, be nice to them, be kind to them, do good things, so that you can then expect that in return. So good actions tend to have good consequences. But the other side of that lesson is, 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 is that bad lessons, I'm sorry, bad actions tend to have bad consequences. If you do bad things, then bad things tend to happen to you. I heard somebody say it this way before. If you play dumb games, don't be surprised when you win dumb prizes. If you do bad things, if you're bad to other people, if you, if you engage in bad things, then there's this high likelihood that there will be bad consequences for those actions. Bad actions tend to have bad consequences. Actions have consequences. Now, it doesn't take a lot of thinking for us to see how then this can apply to our spiritual life and for Jesus Christ. When we love Jesus and follow Jesus, when we read his word and we follow his word, and there are joyful blessings in our lives. We, many of us know that tendency that when we are faithful to God, when we are doing what we're called to do as Christians, then, then there are joyful blessings in our lives. But when we disobey Jesus and we no longer act out of love for him, then we find there is discipline and hardship. 
Why Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a lot there. But the idea very simple is, we love because Jesus first loved us. And Jesus is the greatest blessing we will ever have. And so therefore, if we follow Jesus, we obey Jesus, if we love him, we do like the old hymn says, to trust and obey, then we have those blessings in our life, the blessings of being Jesus, of in Jesus, and the blessings that come from Jesus. Actions have consequences. But there are times when good action, when the good actions lead not so much to bad consequences, but to difficult consequences. We do the right thing. We live the right way. We do what we ought to. Yet, it's not always a rosy path. It's not always an easy path. There may be difficult and even hard times. We do what we're supposed to do. But it's not always easy. And we see that exemplified here in our passage this morning. For the first three chapters, things have been going really well for the followers of Jesus. Gathering the upper room, the 120, and the Holy Spirit descends on them with the sound of a mighty wind and, and pillars of fire. And they are now enabled to, to go out and to share the gospel in, in foreign tongues. Tongues they don't know, languages they don't know, but they're able to share the gospel with all the people who gather in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And they're accused of being drunk. Some grumblers on the side going, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And they're already hopped up on Bad Dog at Boone's farm. And so Peter then stands up to correct them. No, they're not drunk with with wine. They're drunk with the Spirit. And Peter goes on to to boldly share the gospel. And between his sermon and the 120 sharing of the gospel, uh, some 3,000 people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Think of that. The day begins in the upper room, just in prayer. Holy Spirit descends. They're able to go out and share the gospel. Peter declares the gospel, and some 3,000 people become Christians that day. It's a pretty good day, isn't it? And then we find Peter and John going to the temple at the time of prayer. And in and through the name of Jesus Christ, they miraculously healed this lame beggar. And all the people in the temple see this. Things are going well. Until now. As we see in our passage, the religious leaders now show up. They're now getting involved and they're starting to make things difficult. We need to understand there is a spiritual component to these religious leaders' actions. Because these leaders are the same one that Jesus describes as being whitewashed tombs. Even more strongly, he says to them in John chapter 8, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. These religious leaders who show up now, their father is not our father. Their father is Satan. They look good on the outside, but on the inside they are dead. They're not good people. They're not good spiritually. They're not good morally. They're not good ethically. Because behind their religious concern and their outrage is a spiritual component that just like their father, Satan, they hate Jesus because they just crucified him. 
They hate his followers. They hate the work of God. So these religious leaders, the shepherds of the flock of God's people, they weren't encouraged. They weren't delighted. They weren't amazed at this work of God. Luke says they were greatly annoyed. They were disturbed. They were upset by it. And their goal, as we will see, is to stop the spread of the gospel. They want to shut up Peter and John. They want to shut up the other disciples. They want the gospel of Christ to be shut up. And this is a reminder to us that the gospel of Christ will always invoke sharply contrasting responses. See, the gospel will either attract people or it will repel them. It will either cause delight or it will disturb them. The gospel will either evoke everlasting joy or it will evoke deep dismay and even anger. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ will always invoke this sharply contrasting response. It's very black and white. There's no gray to it. Because like Jesus says in Luke 11, we are either with him or against him. That's the response to the gospel, isn't it? When we hear that good news, when we hear about our sinfulness and about the salvation we find only in Jesus Christ, we are either then with Jesus or we are against Jesus there's no part time to it. There's no a little bit here, a little bit there. Jesus says very clearly, you are either 100% with me or you are 100% against me. There's no other path. There's no other way. We're either all the way for Jesus or we're all the way against him. Those are the only responses to the gospel. Our son Patrick in the past several months has really gotten into sports. If you drive by our house at any point in the day, you're going to find him outside uh, throwing or shooting, shooting hoops or, or playing catch with a football or, or baseball. He goes out, he likes to make up his own football games. And I know I've raised him right because he comes and he tells me that the Gamecocks always win. And the Gamecocks play different nations, by the way. Uh, but they always win. But he loves to watch the games too. If it's football or baseball or basketball or hockey, he'll come and he'll sit and watch the game with me. And he'll always ask me, Dad, who are you pulling for? I say, well, son, I'm going to pull for the Boston Celtics. He says, well, I'm going to pull for the Miami Heat. So I get out of the paddle. No, I'm joking. Um, That's okay. You can pull for whoever. But as we watch the game, if his team starts to lose, you know what he does? He starts pulling for the other team. And he'll go back and forth. And he's learning loyalty. He always pulls for the Gamecocks. He always pulls for the Braves. So we're working. We're getting there. But he's learning loyalty. He can only be with one team or with the other. And the gospel is a gospel of loyalty, isn't it? Because the gospel tells us that God is so loyal to you that he gave his only begotten son for you. Even when you were a vicious enemy of his, he gave his son for you. His son on the cross, who as, is, as he's being crucified, looks at those who have been crucified and says to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The gospel is a gospel of loyalty. This is how loyal God is to you. He gave his only begotten son. And our only response is a response of loyalty to the one who so loved us that he lived and died for us. There is no other choice to make, is there? We're either with Jesus 
or we're against Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ will always invoke these sharply contrasting responses as we see in the book of Acts. So 3,000 people have responded in faith to the gospel and religious leaders hate the gospel. I point this out so we may be aware of our own response. Because I find at times we are tempted to temper our response to the gospel. When we, when we look here in the book of Acts at the work of the gospel, that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that there's authentic Christianity, that there's gospel boldness, we may be tempted then to temper the gospel in our own lives when we see the trials and temptations out there. We, we may be tempted that we, we want to go to heaven, but we don't want to live all the way as somebody who wants to go to heaven. We live with this, semi, this semi-authentic Christianity and a lukewarm boldness. Because we don't want to be such a holy roller that by living for Jesus we may face trials and tribulations. We don't want to lose friends over the gospel. We don't want to give up our favorite sins. If we're honest, we may be tempted to live in such a way that we... We want to go to heaven, but we don't want to hold on to our sins so much that when we actually do get to heaven, that maybe the gate will be open for us. Maybe, maybe I can nudge my way in. Because we haven't chosen to fully go with Christ. And that may be indicative of our, of our response to the gospel, isn't it? It may show that our response to the good news of Jesus Christ is that it isn't that good for me to be loyal to it. It may show that that self and sin are more precious to me than Jesus and his gospel. If we're like that, we're not like Peter and John to 3,000. We're like the Sadducees and religious leaders. The only thing is, we have our southern church face on. And we know how to wear that mask well. But a true faith is a faith that's born in the Holy Spirit, that's authentic in practice, that's bold in life and faith. So we are either for Jesus or against him. We are loyal to the one who's loyal to us. There is no halfway point. We don't see that with Peter and John, the other disciples, do we? Their faith is born in the Holy Spirit. It's a faith that's authentic in the way it's lived out. It's bold in the way it's lived and shared. And they take a stand for Jesus. Here in the temple, they take a stand for Jesus, even if they, even there's going to be a not-so-desirable outcome. And this outcome begins with the gospel. This outcome begins uh, from, from the gospel being preached and proclaimed. We find Peter and John. They've healed the lame beggar. He's holding on to them. People want to know what's going on. And so Peter and John are sharing the gospel. They're, they're teaching about, about Jesus. And, and word starts to get out of the temple. Probably the captain going to the, to, the, to the religious leaders. And he tells them, they're talking about the one you crucified. The, the one you captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. The one you put on trial for Pilate. They're preaching about him. And he notice what Luke says. He says they were greatly annoyed. It's one thing to be annoyed, right? It's another thing to be greatly annoyed. 
But what are they greatly annoyed with? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What are they greatly annoyed with? They're annoyed with the gospel. And Luke identifies them as, as the Sadducees. And you may remember from some of your uh, Sunday school lessons, Sadducees recognized only the first five books of the Bible as being scripture. They did not believe in a resurrection of the body. They did not believe in the survival of the soul after death. So, so much of what Christianity stood for, they were against, but yet they were religious leaders. So it was this teaching the name of the resurrected Jesus, this name that elicited the lame man's faith, brought him physical and spiritual salvation. That was the point of issue. That was their main annoyance. So for them, it was all about Jesus, but not in a good way from their perspective. So they have Peter and John arrested. And Luke tells us they have to stay in jail overnight. The reason why is because the court would only meet in the mornings. But do you remember when they went after Jesus? When did they go after Jesus? They went after him at night. They're hypocritical. Now they can't meet with Peter and John to decide their fate. They couldn't, you know, they needed their beauty sleep. So Peter and John stay overnight in jail for the gospel. For living out of faith born in the Holy Spirit. A faith that's authentic in the way it's lived out, is bold in life and faith. It, it, the faith that the Lord uses to heal a man who had been lame for 40 years. And they're sent to the drunk take overnight. And I want you to take notice of Luke's summary of this part. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Religious leaders are trying to silence the gospel, but they couldn't. It's gone from 120 upper room to 3,000 Pentecost. Now it says to uh, over about 5,000 men which means if you include their wives and children, the church is now somewhere in excess of 10,000 people. That's bigger than Fairfield, or that's bigger than Winsboro. And it's only been six weeks. By the calendar, it's only been six weeks since Jesus was crucified. And in that six weeks, now some over 10,000 people have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask how? How? How does this happen? We've seen the answer. God working through faith that's born of the Holy Spirit. God working through faith that's authentic in practice. God working through faith that's bold in life and in sharing. That's our church growth paradigm right there. Before anything else, God grows his church through his people of a faith that's born of the Holy Spirit. That's authentic in practice. That's bold in life and faith. God always builds his church on this, no matter the trials and tribulations we may face. If you keep track of these sort of things, you'll, you'll see that the church is exploding, not in America, not where we have freedom of religion, not where we have this great Christian heritage. The church is dying in America. But you know where it's exploding? China. North Korea, India, and Muslim countries. Do you know what all those countries have in common? They hate Jesus. 
and they persecute Christians. They just don't make fun of them. They put them in jail. They burn down their shops. They kill them. And the church isn't dying over there. The church is exploding. And we can't keep an accurate count of how much is growing because it's growing that quickly. Why? Because it's a faith born of the Holy Spirit. It's a faith that is authentic in practice. It's a faith that's bold. And God is growing the church there in leaps and bounds. Peter and John spend the night in jail. In the beginning of verse 5, going through verse 12, we see the details of their trial that takes place the next morning. They go before the Jewish religious council, the Sanhedrin. You have the high priest on there, members of his family, Sadducees, Pharisees, elders who are neither priests nor scholars. They're just respected heads of Jerusalem's aristocratic families. They all come together. They put Peter and John in front of them, and they have just one question. By what power? And by what name did you do this? Notice something. They're not concerned about the healing. They could care less about this lame man who can now walk. One of their flock, a man they knew, they could care less about him. Their concern isn't about him. Rather, their concern is, are you doing this in the name of Jesus? Would you dare tell others about the one we killed? It's well worth us reading through Peter's response to them. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Luke says that Peter is is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this seems to indicate that there's a divine intervention where the Holy Spirit has enabled the believers to speak God's message. Now the holy character that the Spirit's ongoing presence sustains in individuals is known as full of the Holy Spirit. But Peter has this divine intervention. And in that divine intervention and gospel boldness, do you see what Peter does? He points to Jesus. You want to know who the healing was done in the name of? You want to know who, and whose teaching we're doing in the name of? It's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He didn't say, thank you. First of all, thank y'all for, for me thinking I'm a good teacher. I, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for, for thinking, you know, I have this ability to preach. It's not about them. It wasn't about Peter and John's power. It wasn't about their own piety, their holiness, or ability. He says, let it be known to all of you. Without a shadow of a doubt, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. By him, this man is standing before you well. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And and, and Peter has a good idea of where this boldness could lead because who's judging him? The very same people who judged Jesus, who put him on trial, who crucified him. But Peter doesn't hold back. Why does he not hold back? 
because his faith is born of the Spirit of Christ. It's a faith that's authentic and practice even in the face of trial and tribulations that's bold even in the face of these people he keeps pointing to Jesus and you notice not only does he point to Jesus but he points to them this is Jesus whom you crucified this is Jesus who you rejected as we've said before this is a bold evangelism sort of technique but Peter doesn't. And then he kind of turns the tables on them because these religious leaders were authorities in the Old Testament scriptures. And he takes them back to Psalm 118.22 and he says, this psalm, this cornerstone you know about, that was Jesus. And you rejected him. You killed him. This Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 118 and you are the one who rejected him. So he's standing in the proverbial lion's den. He's staring them down the mouth and the throat of a hungry lion and Peter boldly declares the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he ends with an altar call. I'm afraid Peter may be more Baptist than Presbyterian because he ends with this altar call and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then he looked at the pianist and the organ player and he said, please play it just as I am. And we're going to wait to see how many people come down to respond to this altar call. It's bold, isn't it? To stand in front of people who killed your Lord and Savior and to say, there's no salvation underneath any name except by this name of Jesus Christ. In the face of this boldness, all the leaders can do is issue a warning. They know they're stuck. They know this man's been miraculously healed. People are responding in faith. So they try to silence them in the warning, tell them to, to, to not speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. And in that faith that's born of the Holy Spirit, that's authentic in practice, that's bold in life and faith, Peter and John politely but firmly tell them no. We cannot shut up about this. We're going to tell others about Jesus. Like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, the followers of Jesus will continue to live for him and tell others about him. As we prepare to close this morning, I want to enclose with this one interesting detail back in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. These were educated men. They, they were authoritative. They were religious leaders. And they were astonished by the courage and the knowledge of the unschooled Galilean fishermen. They knew they hadn't gone to religious school. They knew they hadn't been trained like they had. But in reality, Peter and John had been better trained and schooled because they had been with Jesus. I point that out. Because I think there's a temptation for us to look at this passage and think, Peter and John are super Christians. Because they were disciples. And they have an advantage on us because they are super Christians. Therefore, we can't really do like they did. These lessons don't apply to me. And I think Luke concludes this in here to remind us that they're not super Christians. Peter and John are just like you and me. Sinners who need Jesus. They were just normal Christians. 
with uh, the same faith we have that's born of the same spirit that's been given to us. A faith that's meant to be authentic in practice. A faith that's meant to be bold in, faith, in life and faith. And, and that's what God used and blessed. They weren't above us. God just used them as normal Christians. Normal Christians like you and me. They just didn't let their circumstances determine their faith and boldness. They didn't stand in front of them and go, I don't want to get in trouble. Let's temper it down. They were normal Christians like you and me who chose to live for Christ above all else. No matter the situation, no matter the choice, the glory of Christ was their greatest concern and goal. That is what they chose. Each of us have that same choice to make. Said before, and I'll say it again, the world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. And they are seeking to devalue our faith. And we have a choice to make. Either we can live for Jesus no matter the circumstances. Or we can allow the circumstances to determine our faith. Which ultimately means we have no faith at all. We can choose to either be with Jesus. Or we can choose to be against him. And there is no other way. There is no 85% or 75% or even 99% to it. Either we're going to be loyal to him because he's loyal to us. Or we're going to be disloyal to the one who's been the most loyal to us. We will face trials and tribulations. But we must always choose Jesus. Because in choosing Jesus, that shows we have a faith that's born of the Holy Spirit. And choosing Jesus, we're being authentic in the practice of our faith. And choosing Jesus, we're being bold, bold in life and faith. And God can and will do wonders with the people who made that choice because actions have consequences. Let's pray.